Welcome to Indie Matters. The show from the Nevada Independent. I'm your host, Joey Lovato, up here in Reno. And I'm reporter and producer Jacob Solis down in Las Vegas. On this episode of Indie Matters, I sit down with the state fire management officer for the BLM, Paul Peterson, and the director of the Western Regional Climate Center, Tim Brown, to talk about wildfires as the summer heats up and the drought continues. After that, I've got a story for you on the possible acquisition of Sierra Nevada University, a private liberal arts college near Lake Tahoe by the University of Nevada, Reno. At the end of the show, our man in D.C., Humberto Sanchez, comes on to talk about everything going on in D.C. this week, from the Cuban protests to funding bills and more. With the Beckworth Complex fire burning over 90,000 acres north of Reno, and several smaller fires cropping up around the state like the Garson Fire that burned 150 acres west of Reno, I wanted to talk to some experts on what is to be expected as we head into the back half of the summer, where we see a majority of the fires in the western U.S. Last summer, the skies in Reno were gray for over a month with smoke from large fires burning in California, and Vegas has also already experienced some smoky days this summer as well. I spoke with Paul Peterson, the Nevada State Fire Management Officer for the Bureau of Land Management. They oversee all preparedness, suppression, hazardous fuel management, and fire rehabilitation on BLM land in Nevada, which is over 60% of the land in the state. So our office is sitting in, in Reno, Nevada. We have got responsibility all across Nevada. We do, from BLM Nevada, we do have five fire engines up on the Beckworth complex helping those out that did uh, burn into Carson City District. We have six individual districts across the state, Carson City, Winnemucca, Battle Mountain, Elko, Ely, and Las Vegas. And so each of those individual districts have their own respective fire management program. And there's a fire management officer that oversees that. And you know we respond to probably about 97% any fire that happens within Nevada, it's a local area, uh, need some additional fire management assistance or incident commander, we can definitely do that. We do that through agreement all across the state. Okay. And, and right now we're, we're kind of, you're going through a drought. It's pretty bad. And I feel like every year, every summer it's, it's worse and worse. And I feel like it's earlier and earlier when the, the skies start to get smoky and it feels like it lasts forever. Are you guys kind of expecting fire seasons moving forward to, to worsen yeah, and it is, so it's it's always difficult when you hear this is the worst fire season ever. And and now granted, in 2018, we had the largest fire in Nevada history, the Martin Fire. Two years ago in California, they had the largest fire in California history. Last year had the largest, the three largest fires in Colorado history. So we are seeing just fires of magnitude. So this, the Beckworth Complex, it's, it's 90,000 acres, probably approaching 100,000, as you said. We talk about those fires like it's another day at the office now. Uh, whereas where we were 20 years ago, 20,000 acres was a large fire and still is a large fire. But we're seeing just just fires double, triple in size in, in a, a small period of time. Depending on what the winter does really drives what a lot of our fire seasons are. When we have a, a really wet winter and great snowfall in the mountains, what that does typically in Nevada is we get increased annual grass growth, so cheatgrass. That is where we see a lot of our acres burn because there's a huge grass component that will spread that fire in between the brush. When we have a really dry winter and drought, we typically don't see large fires in the sagebrush fuel type because there's just not a lot of grass that is growing on our needle. However, when we're in a drought, when we get into timber or pinyon juniper, 
we see explosive fire growth because those trees are just so dry. Whereas conversely, when we have a wet winter, there, a lot of that moisture stays in the mountains, typically don't see large fires. And so it's depending on your, your elevation and fuel type between drought and a wet winter, that's kind of the, that dichotomy there. What are some of those strategies that you guys are kind of implementing to deal with the, these different types of fires in these different areas of the state? So there's a, a three-pronged attack on this. And mm-hmm. what we try to do is easiest fire to fight is the one before it actually happens. And so we, we do a lot of hazardous fuels treatments, whether that is mowing alongside roads, we do thinning and pinion juniper. And so trying to change the fuel type trying to change the the density of the fuel type. So when there is a fire, we have some type of tactical advantage that we, that we can use with our suppression resources. And then the second part of it is, is trying to prevent fires. Right now, we have 373 fires so far this year. 297 of those are human-caused. 76 of those are lightning-caused. Some of that is there's accidents that happen, and, and we greatly acknowledge that. There is some that are, we call stupid human tricks. And we set up a fire prevention campaign. And whether that is shooting responsibly, not using exploding targets, please don't use fireworks, chains that are dragging alongside the road, maintaining your vehicles. There's all different uh, aspects that, that we focus on for trying to prevent yeah, human-caused fires. The education about red flag warnings. So that's important to try to minimize those human-caused fires. And then the last part is aggressive fire suppression. And so we have 50 fire engines, three, three helicopters. Right now, we're about eight single-engine air tankers scattered throughout the state, about 400, 420 fire personnel throughout the state. And they, they train really hard to get to, to game time in May and June and ready to fight fire. And we send an aggressive initial attack response. So there's a lot of fires that the public doesn't see that are 10th of an acre, one acre, 10 acres. So we catch uh, 97% of our fires at 300 acres or less within the first 24 hour period. Do do you feel like you have enough resources to to fight these fires that you expect to see? Or do you feel like you're understaffed? So it's whenever you have a big fire, there's sometimes it feels like there's not enough resources we we are when we look at our fire resources it's through historic modeling and and looking really what what do we need we do have the ability and we do we bring in additional resources just for surge capability throughout the the bulk of the fire season so june july august september we bring in probably about an additional 50 fire engines and so we double double our resources that are there and so so that's that's usually what we do to to bolster our capability. I'm trying to remember now. You said there was like 370 something fires this year already. 373. Is that more or less than you saw last year? Last year, and you you got to throw COVID into the mix. Yeah. Last year we had 803 fires across the state, and so by by this time last year we had more human caused fires than the previous two or three years combined. And so really? that's just, yeah. And so, so right now with our numbers, we're probably about average-ish for, for this time of the year. But last year, just with people were tired of being inside, we're going to be outside and we're going to recreate, which we love people to recreate on our, our public lands in Nevada. 
just have to do it responsibly. We saw so many human caused fires and a lot of them were in Southern Nevada area. They had almost a fire day, fire every other day, all the way throughout the winter, which is unusual. Las Vegas, as an example, had by this time last year, had more human caused fires than their four previous years combined. Wow, that's really surprising to me, actually, because like I would think like COVID, everyone's staying in, but I guess, yeah, everyone was so anxious to get outside where it was safer to be be around people and, and they were just maybe not being as careful as they could have been. I have a question, too, about, you know, the, the Beckworth is 10% and the Garson is 75% contained. What, is, what, is that, what does that percentage mean when you talk about containment? Can you kind of explain to me a little bit more how you determine that a fire is 10% or 75% contained? Right. So, so typically, so we're, there's a couple terms that we use is contain and control. And so when we contain it, you also see forward, st- forward spread has been stopped. And so what that means is, so on the Garson fire, just as the sun was going down, forward spread has been stopped on that. So we were able to get around that with retardant. It wasn't burning actively. But when we talk about containment, that line has actually been walked by an actual person or a dozer, and they're checking for any hotspots. And so that's what we mean when it's been contained. So 75% of that fire has actually been touched by somebody, and they feel good from the perimeter of the fire up until probably about 30, 40, 50 feet inside the fire perimeter. And so they've checked that entire fire line. That was Paul Peterson, the Nevada State Fire Management Officer. I also talked with Tim Brown, the director of the Western Regional Climate Center, which is one of six regional climate centers administered by the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. The Western Regional Climate Center stores a record of historical climate information and data, distributes climate data as it pertains to the Western U.S., does climate research in the region, and provides climate information tools to the public. Every year, I feel like in the summer, the fires feel worse and worse to me. I mean, maybe maybe it's just looking back, but every year it feels bad. Last year particularly, I remember, it felt like it was just dark all the time with smoke in the sky. Are you guys expecting or forecasting fire seasons to get worse and worse, or, or, or are you seeing any sort of plateau or, or drop-off? Yeah, from a climate change perspective, all indications are fire seasons are getting longer, and within the fire season, the warming temperatures and what's now typically being associated with drought, right? This is a feedback process. That heat sucks all the moisture out of the ground, right? Vegetation, and so it feeds back on itself. And that really increases the fuel flammability. So within fire seasons, yes, we we can expect and should expect to see increases in these more extreme fire behavior and and these larger fire events. I was talking to Paul and he said that like a 20,000 acre fire 20 years ago was a pretty big deal. And while it's a big deal now, we're seeing 100,000 acres. I mean, Beckworth's 92,000 acres right now. Is this something that people are going to have to kind of get used to? Or is there something that people can do to understand this a little bit better and maybe even help? I'm not sure what the public can do necessarily in that regard. But what fire management agencies would like to do is fuel treatments. And that's a key way to to mitigate these fires. So if you can do things to improve the health of the forested regions, if you can do things to minimize the spread of say cheatgrass, these are not simple things. It's easy to say, but they're not simple tasks to, to accomplish. And so prescribed fire 
is certainly one of those ways that fire management agencies would like to try and return our landscapes to more healthy and less severe fire regions. I've heard talk about that actually in the past. In the in, in the, the 70s and 80s and 90s, there was just no prescribed burns. There was much fewer prescribed burns, and so and there was a lot of fire suppression. So we have just this overabundance of growth now, and then all of it is now catching on fire. Is that something that is the perspective that agencies are taking has shifted to kind of dealing with prescribed burns? Is that like a pretty major way to to help future fuel supplies? Yeah, yeah, definitely. And uh, that raises a, a good point. I really think about fire today as the confluence of three things. Climate is certainly one of those. Fuels, as we're discussing now, is one of those. But people are the other. And of course, people are responsible for all three of those things. So it, past management practices has definitely been a factor for not every place in, in the country, but for many places. It has, and that's allowed the fuels to become much more dense than what they uh, were, say, 100 years ago. But then the people part is two things. Well, we have expansion of population in the West, just just growth, but everybody's living in fire-prone areas. These are places that fire has naturally occurred for hundreds of thousands of years. So it's not surprising we have this conflict of, well, Here's where fire naturally occurs, but here's where we're living. And so there are a lot of challenges with that. And even if the fire is far away, you've got smoke now. So that's another thing we're seeing is an increase in human health impacts. Yeah, and I wanted to ask about that. What are some of those health risks that are happening when a region like northern Nevada, for say, is blanketed with smoke? Well, depending on everybody's got their own health factors, some folks are going to be much more sensitive to smoke, you know, than others. You probably know just looking out the window or stepping outside that, yeah, there's, there's a lot of smoke here. This is monitored by air quality agencies. And if that smoke reaches certain levels, it's associated with then increasing impacts of health factors. Pretty much all respiratory though. And last year there was a lot of concern about having smoke respiratory factors on top of COVID, which is also right a respiratory factor in a big way. So for some people that could have been uh, doubly bad. Are you concerned about kind of the fires that we're seeing right now? Or is this more of like a, yeah, we have big fires and this is part of the world we live in, but they're not, they're not alarming to it or, or are they alarming? Right now, it's not especially unusual. The season did seem to start earlier in places. The Northern Rockies right now is the most active area, but Northern California, the Pacific Northwest, these are all areas where fire potential is high. And I looked at some data earlier. There's nine type one incident management teams out. That's the top group. That means you've got a really big event and you need a lot of resources. I saw there were just about 15,000 firefighters out uh, scattered around the West. So I think from a national perspective, it's not overly unusual at the moment. The concern is, is we've got two more months easily to go. And that's a lot of time for some bad things to happen. If we think about last year, right in California, it was August before all that took off. 
are, are there impacts from major fires like that that people maybe don't think about or don't see that you know outside of the things burning and and the smoke in the air yeah so a couple things depending on where it occurs there could be post-fire debris flow would be one factor so if there should be a heavy rain suddenly you could have all this debris you know come flowing down that steep terrain and of course depending again on its location that could impact a watershed it could impact public you know water supply and so that's that could be a serious issue for some places for a lot of places though the question is what's going to come back in terms of vegetation if it's a forested area that really burns severely there's not necessarily a guarantee that that forest is going to return. And there's really questions about that because grasses and shrubs are the first things that want to move in. But also with climate change, will future climate allow that same vegetation type to really take hold? And there's ecologists that are researching this and and thinking about that. And and of course, that's an issue for fire management agencies as well. What What is that landscape going to look like in the future? So that's the kind of slow change that public might not realize just driving by because that could take several decades to resolve itself and see what, what has come back. That was Tim Brown with the Western Regional Climate Center. You can find more information about them at wrcc.dri.edu. And if you want to know more about current fire restrictions and current fire information, you can go to nevadafireinfo.org. It came as something of a surprise last week when the trustees at Sierra Nevada University, a small liberal arts college near Lake Tahoe, announced that they had approved an agreement that would allow the school to become part of UNR. There was no pretense to the announcement and few public signals that it was on its way. But if it goes through, it could be one of the biggest additions to any Nevada university ever. I'm joined by Jacob Solis, who is normally my co-host, but today I am, I am, I am interviewing you, Jacob. Welcome to the show, uh, a show that you're very familiar with. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thank you for having me on the show that I help host. Yes, well, thank you for, for switching from co-host to interviewee. So I guess let's just start with, what is Sierra Nevada University and, and, and who at UNR is kind of dealing with, with this, this, this merger? Is it a merger? Is that what it's called? Yeah, so that's actually an interesting question, and we should start there. Both Sierra Nevada and UNR have been very precise about the language they're using, and so it's not technically a merger, though I don't think anyone would have a real problem with anyone calling it that. It's technically an acquisition. What's happening here is that Sierra Nevada is basically offering their campus as a gift to UNR, and UNR would basically assume all of Sierra Nevada's assets and its liabilities, which apparently aren't many, but there are a few. And so if you think about it, and this was described to me by a trustee at Sierra Nevada, Janet Lowe, she's the vice chair of their board, as really a kind of like a corporate acquisition. Okay. And so this is basically just UNR is just taking on Sierra Nevada University and it will just become another campus, a satellite campus uh, for the university. Essentially, the way Brian Sandoval described it, he liked the word integration, which I think is pretty apt at describing what would actually happen at the end of the day. Though I should say there are a lot of questions that remain unanswered. And one thing that came up a lot when I talked to, to Sandoval specifically was that we are very early in the process here. All right. And so, you know, why is I guess the big question is, why is Sierra Nevada University doing this? Why are they basically giving themselves to UNR? 
Why this is happening, I mean, this is really about financials. And the Board of Trustees at Sierra Nevada, I mean, they're a small liberal arts college. And just like a lot of small liberal arts colleges uh, nationwide, they've been seeing this increased pressure uh, on their financials because enrollment has been decreasing year on year for years. And there's no expectation that that trend is going to change. And Janet Lowe, one of the trustees at Sierra Nevada University, basically told me that unless you're one of the biggest private universities in the country, there's no easy way out of this problem. There's no easy way uh, to increase enrollment. I would say across the United States, you know, something like 50% or, or more of small colleges are under pressure. They tend to be the ones like us that are smaller um, and, and, and not as selective. Um, so, you know, the, the Harvards of the world have a, have a wait list, of, you know, 10, 20,000 people deep. But, but when you're, you know, when you're smaller and less selective, you don't have that. So understanding that, Lowe also told me that those pressures weren't terminal or anything, right? That, that, that decreasing enrollment wasn't so dangerous to Sierra Nevada that it was in danger of closing at any point. The complicating factor here was really COVID, because COVID cut their freshman enrollment for 2020 almost in half. And that's a problem that persists for years, right? If you have a freshman cohort that is half the size of all the other ones, that is perpetually giving you half the income you would have expected from that cohort. And so it becomes a a problem that compounds. Now, even then, Lowe said that that wasn't a huge issue that would have closed the school. They would have continued to operate. But then there becomes a risk factor. What if there's another COVID outbreak? What if there's another shock to the, to the system? It just looked risky, okay? It looked risky for everyone. And you got to think about this. So here we are, a board of trustees. And we're, we're entrusted with this asset. We're entrusted with the livelihood of our students, our employees. And this seemed like a more stable, brighter future for them then, you know, and and what if there's another, you know, COVID outbreak? Or what if there's another shock to the system? I mean, we just are now at a point we couldn't take another shock. So with all this happening, why does UNR even want Sierra Nevada College? What's in it for them? Is it it just that it's nice to have a campus up in Tahoe? That's the main reason, yeah. So the the basically Brian Sandoval, uh, he gave me a couple concrete reasons. One of them is environmental research. I mean, having access to a campus that's literally right next to Lake Tahoe is a huge boon to anyone using the lake for environmental research. And so I think a lot of researchers at UNR are excited at the possibility of doing that. But also, I mean, let's be frank, it's a campus right next to Lake Tahoe. It's a beautiful place. And a lot of people would be very interested just in having the opportunity to go study down there, to go teach down there. I think that a lot of people have a lot of ideas about using the space that exists. And the thing for UNR is they don't have to build anything. They don't have to buy anything. They just get this campus that already exists and is in great shape in a great location, and they just get to use it. And so Brian Sandoval, he said that he spoke to his deans and his leadership team, and a lot of them were very excited. When I had my conversation with with my leadership team and the respect deans from across the university, I told them to, to let their imaginations run wild in terms of what, what the potential for the, for the campus could be. And most of them said their heads were spinning. Yeah, and I guess so the last question I have is just, you know, when is this going to happen? What's the timeline looking like for, for you and our, you know, acquiring uh, Sierra Nevada University? So the real answer is that we don't have a good idea of how long this is going to take because we're sort of entering a long and complicated regulatory process that's going to involve a lot of different governmental bodies. 
the first step that already happened is that the Sierra Nevada trustees approved that initial agreement. So sort of like the groundwork has been laid. This is a thing that people want to happen. So we're moving forward with the process. Next is the Board of Regents for the state of Nevada. And basically the way that Sandoval described it was that the University of Nevada, Reno, is asking for permission to continue exploring this acquisition. Even if it goes through the regents this month, then UNR has to start engaging with regulators. They have to start having conversations with the Department of Education because they need to make sure that the students who are already at Sierra Nevada get degrees. How are they going to get degrees? There's a lot of sort of logistics that needs to happen between now and then. And they need to make sure that everything is kosher with the, the accreditation boards that are involved here. We are very, very early in the process, and this is going to take quite a while. All right, Jacob. Well, I think we'll leave it there for now. But thank you so much for talking with me today. And and uh, you can read more of Jacob's story on our website, thenevadaindependent.com, which has a new sleek redesign. If you want to check it out, it looks really good. What do you think of it, Jacob? It looks great. Please read my story on our brand new website. Yeah, that's right. And Jacob, I will talk to you in the outro. Yeah, I'll see. I'll see you in a couple of minutes, Joey. <laughs> All right. All right, and so I am here for the DC debrief with our man in DC, Humberto Sanchez. Humberto, we always start with the weather. How is it in DC right now? It's super hot. It's uh, humid. It's it's the the height of of the summer weather here. It is it is extremely hot in Reno too. We've had just record breaking days every day for weeks on end. Now it's over 100 degrees. I am staying inside. It feels like Las Vegas. Although if I said that to someone from Las Vegas, I'm sure they would laugh at me in their 115 degree heat. <laughs> So uh, there's been a lot going on in D.C., so uh, let's get into it. But let's start with uh, Jackie Rosen joining this bipartisan group of of legislators for the the infrastructure bill. Sure. So uh, Jackie Rosen has become the 22nd senator in a bipartisan group of senators, 11 Democrats and 11 Republicans, working on a bipartisan infrastructure package. The uh, bill that they're working on would basically fund roads and uh, bridges and and water infrastructure and broadband, things you consider your run-of-the-mill garden variety infrastructure. And and she, of the 22 folks working on the bill, they've broken it up into different sections of the bill. And she's working on airports and broadband, which are obviously important to the, the state. And uh, I was talking to her on Thursday, and she said that she was hopeful that a bill can come together. The Senate Democrat leadership has said that they plan to try to hold a vote on that as soon as Wednesday. All right, cool. And we'll see. And what, what's the expectation on how that's going to pass? That is still an open question because the the Republicans in that group are getting a little skittish over the fact that the Democrats are, are planned to pass a $3.5 trillion bill on their own under this process that allows them to pass measures without a filibuster with a simple majority. So we'll see what happens. They're going to try to work out the legislative language. And if they can get to something by Monday, we'll probably know whether or not it's it'll pass. But it's going to be tight. It's going to and they're going to work through the weekend. So also there's just this this kind of this big funding bill. It's kind of a, you're going to need to explain this one to me a little bit more in depth, but but what is going on with funding outside of this infrastructure bill that we've been talking about? There's all these other funding bills happening right now. So as we said earlier, there's the bipartisan bill that we have 22 senators working on. And then there's a democratic package that the Democrats are trying to pass a 3.5 trillion dollar package. It'll include things like family leave and health care and affordable housing and things like that. And then they have the annual spending bills. Those are also coming down the pipe. 
and all of this is happening uh, at the same time. So it is very confusing. And they all face different challenges. Again, the bipartisan bill and the Democratic priorities bill are somewhat tied together, which is going to make it difficult for Democrats to keep their Republican support for the bipartisan bill because of that big bill. And then on the other side, you have the annual spending bills, and they always have problems just because, you know, people want different priorities. <laughs> and the appropriations process is, is usually breaks down at some point, and we pass a massive end of the year spending bill pretty much for the last, you know, seven, 10 years, something like that, if not longer. So, and, and Nevada has things at stake in each of those three tranches of money. And, and so in the, in the bipartisan bill, you know, that's for roads and trains and things like that. So obviously I-11, I-15, and uh, high-speed rail is all going to come probably that from that funding pot. And then the Democratic priorities, you, you see things like child care, which is important in Nevada. That's a big deal. Susie Lee was telling me about that. Affordable housing, that they'll benefit from that. And then on the annual spending bills, you'll see things like uh, for defense, for like Nellis Air Force Base, for Fallon, all that stuff is in that bill. So we're watching all three of those things. And while the infrastructure bill and the Democratic bill you know, uh, may or may not happen, depending on how things. So the, the the annual appropriations bill has to happen, or else the government will shut down. So we're, the, those will definitely likely happen. Yeah, and well, and we know we've seen the government shut down in years past. So let's hope that that doesn't happen again this this year. And, and then moving on, kind of from the finances of the government and the bills and the complicated nature of funding different things to to something that's going on in D.C. this week is the Cuban protest. Can you explain to me what's going on with that protest? And you know, if if anyone in Nevada said anything about it. Yeah, so um, there's an uprising essentially in Cuba right now where people are, are protesting in the streets. There's a, a lack of food. There's a, a lack of resources there and, and people are uh, up in arms. And so we're seeing a lot of the protests here and, we're, and, and a lot of people in Congress are watching, are keeping an eye on that protest. The last thing that the government here wants is for there to be an exodus of people from Cuba to the United States. And they also, you know, there's a human rights crisis there. So there's a, a, a desire to, to help provide aid and to help the Cuban people. And so one person we have heard talk about in the, the protest in Cuba is as Senator Cortez Masto being the only Latina in, in the Senate says that she supports the Cuban people and that she wants them to be free. She wants them to have an opportunity to create a, a lasting change and, and to get rid of the repressive regime in Cuba. And so we'll see what happens with that. There's a lot of discussion. President Biden was vice president with President Barack Obama, who, who tried to get rid of that blockade against Cuba. And so we'll see whether there's going to be a return to that set of circumstances or whether other different steps will be taken. But something has to be done because, you know, again, I think what the government is trying to avoid most of all is some kind of exodus. If you want to read more of Humberto's work, you can find his DC download every Saturday on our website. Thank you for listening to this episode of Indie Matters. We'd like to thank Paul Peterson, Tim Brown, and Humberto Sanchez for being on the show this week. Leave us a review wherever you listen. Subscribe to our newsletter, Soundcheck, and email us with questions, comments, concerns, Bionicle movie reviews, Digimon fan fiction suggestions, or whatever else you want to tell us about at joey at thenvindie.com or jacob at thenvindie.com. Reno band People With Bodies wrote and performed our original theme song. If you want to hear more of their music, you can find them on Spotify or Bandcamp. There was additional music in today's episode from Lance Conrad and myself. Thank you for listening to Indie Matters. I'm your host, Joey Lovato. And I'm reporter and producer Jacob Solis. And we'll talk to you in two weeks. We're taking a summer hiatus next week.
Tex-Mex is barely Mexican food. It's very different. It's, I like them both, but they're so they're different categories. No, this no. is this Tex-Mex is, is no. No, you don't like Tex-Mex? No, Tex-Mex sucks. I'm putting this as and, the blooper and everyone's going to get mad at us. Well, they'll get mad at me, but I'll, <laughs> I'll stand by that opinion. It's simply too much cheese and too much sour cream. I do, as a lactose intolerant person, I love sour cream and cheese. <laughs> <Did you really? laughs> 